0: listening to The Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and
1: emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Hello, welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries. Today I'm very happy to welcome freelance journalist Nick Aspinwall. Nick, thank you for joining us today.
0: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Where are you based at the moment?
0: I am currently in Taipei. Um, So here in Taiwan, it really has been been a model response to the coronavirus. Um, I generally go between here in Taiwan and um, Manila. So there, of course, are just two very different stories.
1: So yeah, these are the two basically countries as well that I want to kind of discuss with you today. First, Taiwan, and then the Philippines. As you said, it's, it's very, the response has been very, very different. Um, in Taiwan, you know, whenever we read the media these days, Taiwan has been praised for its response to the virus. Which measures were taken in place by the government and the authorities? And how, how, did, how can it be kind of seen as an example for, for other countries around the world?
0: So Taiwan, um, the, the first thing is that it just took this very seriously from the beginning. Um, it was already um, well equipped to deal with the pandemic. Of course, it had the experience with SARS in 2003, and it also has a very strong public health system. As national health insurance. And um, that's been extremely valuable um, here in Taiwan throughout this. Um, so on December 31st, when authorities here in Taiwan first heard um, about a, an unknown virus at that time in Wuhan, it started screening passengers arriving from Wuhan on the same day. It also sent an email to the WHO, which um, warned of the virus and the possibility of human-to-human transmission, which the WHO didn't confirm for weeks later. But here in Taiwan, um, authorities had already begun to prepare, and that has, um, that has paid off in dividends. It, it mobilized the Central Epidemic Command Center to um, coordinate the national response to the virus. Um, it did things like um, it, it expanded screening measures over time It, um, it and entry to travelers from China um, earlier than many other countries. and. Um, in late January, when things started to, um, when public concern over the virus really started to rise in Taiwan, around the time it had its first case, and immediately bolstered its um, face mask production. There was a very brief period where there was a shortage of surgical masks. The government sent military to mask production facilities. It it, it provided equipment for producing masks to factories, and it's increased its production to around fifteen million a day um, at this point. So and there's been a rationing system um, for mass purchases that has um, that has allowed Taiwan to have a surplus of masks now, which is why it's able to donate to other countries, which I'll get to in a bit. But I think the really uh, a, a really important point that um, that I always like to make clear is just the communication um, between the government and the people has been um, you know it by and large has been very good. The health minister holds daily press conferences. He often responds directly to public concerns. Um, The, uh, you know, the relevant agencies are active on social media. They often make very relatable posts. There's a very, you know, a very coordinated and effective strategy of making sure that the public is very aware of the severity of the virus, but also making sure they don't panic. So the government has been very transparent, and I think, just um, by virtue of that, it's one public trust. So it is certainly accurate to say that Taiwan's democracy has been a, a very large factor in the effectiveness of its response.
1: Yeah, it's been similar here as well in terms of communications. The issue of transparency and, and kind of daily briefings. And do you do you think you know China has been very not especially at the beginning of the crisis? They didn't say anything. That there was no transparency whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You know, Taiwan has a very kind of complicated relationship with China. Do you think that though it, it learned from looking at China and what not to do as well in terms of communication transparency? Probably Taiwan has probably also learned not to trust China at all in terms of what what its mm. uh, in terms of messaging.
0: Right. Absolutely. There, um, Taiwan certainly was not ready to trust China, and ultimately that you know that helped Taiwan take prepare a lot earlier than other countries, you know, just by knowing that the, um, whatever information was coming out of China might be inaccurate, might be um, delayed as as the Chinese government ended up not, you know, providing, uh, you know, the uh, updated data in the first few weeks of the pandemic in Wuhan. Yeah, that's certainly been a, um, that's certainly been a factor here in Taiwan. Um, it's, uh, the government especially has, um, you know, I think, I think has learned the, um, you know, how taking the um, Chinese government at its word can be very right. detrimental. The people, um, the people of Taiwan, by and large, understand that as well.
1: So we were speaking about the issue of, of masks. We know that Taiwan has shipped thousands of masks to some of its neighbors, but also um, the United States, Europe, because we know Europe, especially France, has been really looking for masks. And it is shipped as well, masked to the Caribbean. Why is Taiwan currently placing itself on the international stage when it comes to providing aid to countries around the world? And can we see it as a kind of a victory over over China's own kind of mask diplomacy?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. And Taiwan has certainly um, been able, Taiwan has always, um, especially under the current administration of Taiwan, it has been working really hard to. Um, to secure its, um, and to bolster its international presence as Taiwan, and Beijing has um, done many things to try and limit that. So Taiwan's ability to export masks, and um, there were two, there were two uh, mass waves of, um, there was one, uh, 10 million masks were shipped to um, countries, the US and European countries, and then uh, and diplomatic allies and then 6 million were shipped to um, other countries in the Americas, South and Southeast Asia and Australia. So um, just just in the last month or so, it has shipped 16, it's donated 16 million masks So it's also between that and the efficiency of its own response and its very public willingness to want to help other countries, not just national governments, but state and local governments, with their own responses, that has given, that has certainly helped bolster Taiwan's international standing, which is a big um, big political victory for the government as well. In contrast with China, its own mask diplomacy um, and its... Um, you know, it's sending um, PPEs, test kits um, to countries um, in Europe, for instance, has been, um, has had its share of problems with um, things like defective equipment and also concerns over um, you know China's motives, which have been only exacerbated by what its, uh, some of its diplomats have been saying about it. It's, um, I'll say mask diplomacy, although it's more than mask diplomacy. So if there's, um, you know, if, we're, if Taiwan is able to just let the world contrast it with China, then I think that the government here probably feels that that works at its best. Um,
1: how do you think it will um, kind of affect the the China Taiwan relationship in, in the long term? Because I think since the last elections in, in Taiwan. You know, we've seen the relationship kind of really changing fast. Um, do you think it will have a long-term? This pandemic will have a long-term effect on on the relationship between both countries.
0: It certainly will, just by virtue of bolstering Taiwan's international standing. And we will wait and see if there are some, uh, you know, some very concrete changes. For instance, if Taiwan is able to gain observer status at the at the World Health Assembly. Um, if we see things like that, then those will be very, um, you know, those will be measures that Beijing, of course, takes, you know, takes as very takes very seriously as things that harm its own uh, dreams of unifying Taiwan with uh, with China. So there is no question that anything that bolsters Taiwan's standing and also anything that decreases public trust in uh, the Chinese government is going to affect the relationship between Taiwan and China. Um, However, it is of course it is a very deep question and um, one that we will you know we will find the answers day by day week by week. Um, so far, um, Beijing's messaging on what Taiwan has been doing has been mostly aimed at its own domestic audience. When it's critical of Taiwan, it knows that won't play as well in the U.S. and Europe, for instance. But it will it, it will play well domestic. There's there's a whole other um, you know a whole other kind of worms there with how there's just been such an um, an increase in xenophobia in China, right? And just anti foreign sentiment that seems to be driven by, by the state. So yes, that's something that um, right now, I'm not quite sure if um, Beijing has decided how it's going to handle this going forward on an international stage. But as we've seen in the Taiwan-China um, dynamic for years, anything can change.
1: Yeah. Mm. And, exactly. and it can change tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, China's communication strategy these days seems to be changing all the time. Um, Let's move on to um, the case of the Philippines. Uh, You said earlier today that the situation was very different there. So I want to start first with a question. How is the government handling this? What is the state of the spread of the virus? We know that the president is very, very controversial because he's very... You know he likes to rage at people and say very controversial statements. Um, so what's the situation over there now?
0: Right, and that's um and that's certainly continued during um, during the pandemic. So it, it is a very opposite approach. Um, yes, Duterte in the Philippines has um, often taken the the so-called strongman approach to um, address problems, and that's that's happened here as well. It's strong criticism from rights groups and. Um, I think that, you know, what we've noticed is the government there has been just really open to, um, well, it's received a lot of criticism, and a lot of its moves have been reactionary to that criticism, and, um, you know, potentially, as it realizes that there was a lack of planning and foresight. Um, Manila did, um, well, the island of Luzon did lockdown quite early, I believe it was on March 18th, um, Manila began a community party on March 15th, and the island went into lockdown a few days later. Um, so that was relatively early compared to other countries in the region. Whether or not that was able to slow the spread of the virus, it's hard to tell because there has not been mass testing. Um, medical facilities are overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, even outside of, um, outside of Luzon, there aren't, um, there aren't centers that can process tests in the islands. Um, so tests have been transported back to Manila. For people who still have to work, social distancing uh, in a place as dense as Manila is absolutely possible. And there have been, you know, um, food and financial relief has been slow to come. For um, you know, some quite a few communities have not got it. So um, it's been a um, it's been a very chaotic response um, from the get go, and um, that is that is still continued. Um, the the one theme that we see is that. When there is criticism, or when it feels like Duterte and his administration are um, potentially losing control, even if in the court of public opinion, then that's when a lot of those, um, you know, stronger measures start being proposed to enact.
1: Yeah, he's known. Uh, he's gained a reputation for cracking down on human rights activists, um, journalists, you know, anyone who criticizes his government, but also how how is he managing situation with like poor or urban populations How how is basically everything that he was doing before how is it basically accelerated now
0: right so for um for urban poor um populations there was um there was an incident in san roque which is a um, poor community in quezon city part of metro manila and um, on March 31st, they protested. Um, whether or not it was a planned protest is pretty unclear. It seems more, um, seems more likely that what happened is they believed that food relief was finally going to arrive. It hadn't arrived in over two weeks, so they went out to the street. Um, but instead, they were met by police, and conflict arose, and 21 people were arrested. And um, it was in response to that that Duterte um, issued his order um, that quarantine violators associated with activist groups he said to police and military shoot them dead. Um, so that was, um, of course, that, that sparked a public outcry, predictably, but that's, those communities have, have just felt, um, for a long time, even before this outbreak, they've um, often felt neglected, like social, uh, you know, social programs are not reaching them. Um, I visited San Roque, um, actually, the, uh, the day before the lockdown began. And they had all of um, all of the fears that they expressed to me. It seems that they came true. Um, there were um, there were places there that, you know, there was no running water. Um, people couldn't wash their hands. People were afraid that, you know, if they're not able to work, they're living week by week, paycheck to paycheck, and they won't be able to feed their families. They can't afford to pay. Um, you know, would, people would tell me we can't panic by we can only panic and um, and that was um, you know, a lot of that a lot of that came true it was just very slow um, it took the government a long time to announce any clear um, plan for providing financial relief providing food relief and it's, it's very slow and it, you know, it's um makes it exceedingly likely that even when the um, when the peak of the virus subsides in the Philippines, there will be um, just many more problems uh, with poverty food security. and
1: um, Yeah, if there's one thing I think this pandemic has done, done kind of around the world is kind of really reveal a lot of the socioeconomic equalities of societies around the world. And some ha- some people have access to you. To healthcare and, and just basic waters, so some people just just don't. And I, I know the Philippines is yet another example. Um, a final issue I want to talk to you about we've been talking a lot about on this right. podcast about the state of misinformation and propaganda and conspiracy, conspiracy theories about the coronavirus. Um, and it's something that we've noticed around the world, you know, it's a problem. Uh, be it here or in, 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 in the Philippines. Um, I know that Twitter um, suspended hundreds of accounts in the Philippines for um, violating its rules. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about this and more generally about the Twitter's uh, kind of role in spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories?
0: Sure, yeah. So what happened there when, um, earlier this month, when Twitter suspended hundreds of accounts, um, they had been um, yeah, they had been using specific hashtags in support of Duterte, this happened right after the San Roque incident I mentioned before when Duterte said shit dead. Um, after that happened, there was a very large, uh, um, the hashtag, now was trending on, um, on Twitter globally. Um, of course, it came from people in the Philippines who were infuriated at what Duterte had said and just the overall uh, ineffectiveness of the, of the response to the coronavirus. So after that happened, it seemed like um, you know accounts in a um, you know originated and started using pro Duterte hashtags in a very inorganic way. And it was about a week later that Twitter um, suspended, uh, it said hundreds of those accounts according to uh, the other report in the Washington Post. Um, So that's um, it's a very um, it's something we've seen a lot of in the Philippines when Duterte was campaigning for president. There were lots of you know, these online troll armies that we would see, um, that you know, seem to generate a lot of um, inauthentic support. And it's become known that there are, you know, that there are um, PR experts who are hiring, you know, hiring Filipinos to create, you know, create fake accounts and manipulate online discussions, often in support of a political candidate. Um, there has been, Basically, no pushback on um, from the Philippine government against this, as um, you know, it seems like they are often what's of benefit. So it's been called by um, by disinformation experts a breeding ground for um, yeah. for international. Prices. So it's um, you know it's quite likely that what we see in the Philippines is you know going to continue to be replicated. Around
1: the world. All right, thank you so much, Nick for joining us today, and especially since it's it's getting quite late uh, where you are, uh, and I hope we'll be able to follow up soon, especially regarding the situation of the in the Philippines and um, how the virus is spreading there, especially among um, poor communities. Uh, we'll be speaking later this week about the situation in India as well, where in some of the slums, mm. you know physical distancing is just it's just impossible. So, um, I'm I'm looking forward to hear more about what's going on over there in the Philippines.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here for staying safe and healthy for you.